I should like to call your attention this morning to that incident in the 7th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, which we read together at the beginning, which is to be found from verse 36 to the end of the chapter. The account of what happened when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ went into and dined in the house of Simon the Pharisee. Now, this is a, a most important incident in our Lord's life and ministry, one of those crucial, vital incidents that is recorded in the Gospels. And its importance, of course, lies in the fact that it directs our attention and indeed commends that we give our attention to what is undoubtedly the most important matter of all in connection with religion and our Christian faith, namely our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that is why I call your attention to it. Our greatest danger, all of us probably, is to forget the person. And while we are interested in many things and in many truths concerning him, to forget the person himself. And yet I say this is the very center of our faith. First and foremost, it is a personal relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that, of course, is the message of the entire Bible. He is the one who dominates the entire book from beginning to end. Old Testament as well as New. All the prophecies point forward to him. They're looking forward to his coming. The types and the shadows in the book of Leviticus and other places, the angel of the covenant, all these things are but adumbrations of this person, this one who was to come. And of course the New Testament is given entirely to a demonstration and an exposition of him. These Gospels are portraits of him. The epistles draw out the doctrine concerning him and point us to the truth concerning him. Christianity, as has often been pointed out, is indeed Christ himself. And therefore the most important question which you and I can ever face is the question that was put by some of the people who were fellow guests with our Lord in the house of Simon the Pharisee. You remember, we read in verse 49, And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this? Who is this that forgiveth sins also? That's the question. The most important question I say that we can ever face the most vital question in the life and experience of every one of us. And uh, the value, I say, of this uh, incident in particular is that it thus holds us face to face with him and with this question. Now the four Gospels, as I've indicated, are portraits of him. They put him before us in his person, in his teaching, in his works, in his activities. And all along, they're asking us to consider him and to look at him. But they go even further. They give us, in a most helpful manner, the reactions of people to him. 
So that as we look at these people and look at their varying reactions, we may compare and contrast ourselves with them and discover whether our attitude towards him and our relationship to him is the right one and is the true one. Now, this incident, I feel in that way, is unusually helpful because it gives us two people. Two people confronting the same person. Two people are interested in him. And it presents a portrait of these two subsidiary figures looking at the great central figure. And it shows us the difference and the striking contrast. And thereby I say, this great lesson is enforced upon us. That it's this that matters. What do we think of him? What is our relationship to him? What is our reaction to him? And all he is and all that he does. But even further, this incident helps us in this way. That our Lord himself enforces the lesson. He, as it were, underlines the contrast. The contrast is there. It's represented dramatically. The people themselves showed the difference, but our Lord didn't leave it at that. He underlined it. He spoke a parable to bring it out. And then, even having spoken the parable, he gave specific teaching. He laid down a principle. He said, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he's already pointed out in detail to Simon the difference and the contrast between his reaction and that of this poor woman who was also in the house. Now, it's to that I want in particular to call your attention this morning. I say again that nothing matters save our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And at this moment, every one of us is being tested, exactly as Simon and the woman were being tested in that house nearly 2,000 years ago. Unseen, the Lord is present. And he divides up this congregation as he divides up the whole world this morning. He judges us. His very presence judges us. Because we make some kind of response to him. And those who make no response at all are making a response, of course. That is their response. And oh, that we all might have grace and the gift of the Spirit upon us to realize this. That he is very sensitive to our response to him. Did you notice that as I read the incident? How observant he was. How sensitive to the treatment he received. Uh, how careful he was to point out to Simon what Simon had failed to do. And what the woman had done. Though he is the Son of God and the Lord of glory. He notices these things and he's very sensitive to them. And he is concerned about our reactions and concerned about our relationship, and concerned about our feelings and our response to his gracious and his glorious presence. Very well then I say, as realizing that we are in his presence, let us face this question. He is still the same. The fact that he is now seated at the right hand of glory, makes no change in this respect. I can prove that. 
Do you remember what he said to Saul of Tarsus on the way to Damascus? There he looks down upon that man on the road and says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He says it with sorrow, he says it with grief. The action of the apostle, the action of Saul at that point, was an action against him, and he's aware of it, and he feels it. And he puts his question. And that, I say, is the position at this present moment. He's observing us all. And he's asking us all that kind of question. He's asking us why we fail to yield to him the devotion of our hearts. Why we have failed him in certain respects. He is still the same as he was in the house of Simon. Well now, in order briefly to concentrate attention on this great matter this morning, let me put it to you in the form of a number of principles. The first is that the ultimate test of our Christian profession is love. That is surely the thing that stands out so obviously and on the very surface of this incident. It's our relationship to him, it's our feeling towards him, it's our love of him. That's the ultimate thing. Now, this man Simon, for instance, the Pharisee, was a man who was obviously interested in the Lord. He desired him that he would eat with him. He gave him an invitation to come into his house and to join him at a meal. That, for a Pharisee, was rather a striking and rather a remarkable thing. Because we are familiar with the attitude of these people in general towards our Lord. But here is a man who is really interested in him. He'd obviously been attracted by him. He'd felt a desire to know more about him and to know him better and to know him more intimately. Indeed, we may well go a bit further and say this, that probably he admired him. He'd heard his teaching. He'd witnessed some of the miracles. So that, you see, this man Simon the Pharisee was one who in that kind of way had become very interested in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, he invites him into his house and there they're going to share a meal together. But the whole point of the incident, in a sense, is to show how completely inadequate that attitude is. Simon's relationship to our Lord stops at that point. And our Lord rebukes him for it. Though he offers him his hospitality, and though he pays him this kind of deference and of respect, his attitude nevertheless is a cold one. It's an impersonal one. There's something seriously lacking in it. And it is for this reason that I'm directing attention to this whole subject this morning. And that is why I ask my question again. What is our attitude, I wonder, to him? We are interested in him or we wouldn't be in this building. We must have a concern about him. It's clear that he must have appealed to us and must have attracted us in certain respects. We may be interested in reading the scriptures and in studying the scriptures. Yes, but all that can be purely intellectual. It can be detached, as detached as this man Simon the Pharisee was. The whole time he stands apart, as it were. He stands back. He's judging. He's looking on. There's no real intimate relationship. There is a coldness. There's a detachment. There is none of this intimacy. 
It's intellectual. It's general. It's superficial. And it has failed to reach that personal depth. That thing which is the very pulse and nerve and center of true Christianity. Now here I say, therefore, we must examine and question ourselves. An intellectual interest in Christianity doesn't make us Christian. An interest in his teaching, an interest in his person, an admiration for the person, to praise the person, is not enough. Indeed, let me go further and say even this. That even an orthodox belief in and of itself is not enough. For one can accept the tenets of the faith and accept them as a system purely intellectually. And it is possible for us, alas, to substitute even that for this living relationship to the person. And therefore, if I do nothing else this morning, I can go on repeating my one great question. What does the Lord Jesus Christ himself mean to you? All our time is wasted as we study and analyze the scriptures and give our expositions unless the person himself has this vital meaning to us. Now that is the thing I say that comes out so clearly in the attitude of the woman who presents such a striking contrast to Simon the Pharisee. What we are reminded of concerning her is this, is that she is interested in the person himself. It's the personal relationship that matters to her. Simon was interested in our Lord because he was anxious to know more about his teaching. There was something unusual about him. He hadn't been through the schools. He was a strange kind of person. He, he hadn't met anything quite like this before and he's interested curiously, intellectually. He's intrigued. Not so the woman. The woman uh, stands at his feet, falls at his feet, gives herself, as it were, to the person. It's the personal relationship to her that's everything. Her one interest is in him. And here we see so strikingly her love and her devotion. Her profound sense of gratitude. And above all, her abandon. Her casting herself at his feet. Her desire to express what she felt in her heart towards him. Now the thing I say is perfectly clear and, and obvious. But how prone we are to forget this. And yet you know this is the thing that is emphasized everywhere in the scripture itself. It's this quality of love. Look at these first Christians. Look at the apostles. Look at the people in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Nothing is so striking and so obvious about them as the fact that it was this personal relationship to the Lord that mattered with them supremely. And if you read the confessions and the lives and the statements of the saints of the centuries, you'll always find this. Their love for their Lord. They express it in their diaries. They write of it. How their hearts were almost overcome by a sense of love to him. How they felt themselves drawn out to him. How nothing mattered but him. You remember the statement for one, let me give you one example. Count Zinzendorf, that great leader of the Moravian Brethren, 
He put it once like this, and it was true to his experience. He said, I have one passion. It is he. And he alone. And as you go through their diaries, I say, and read their works, you'll find that this is the thing that stands out. And take our hymn books. Look at the hymns that express it. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast. And so on. Jesus, these eyes have never seen that radiant form of thine. And yet man goes on to express his love. This intimate personal relationship is, I say, above everything else, the thing that has characterized God's people from the very beginning down until this present day. And therefore I do not hesitate again to assert that first principle, that the test of our profession of Christianity is our love to the Lord. It is where he comes into our lives that matters. Oh, how easy it is to be orthodox and yet to forget him. How easy it is to be busy but to forget him. I wonder what the result would be if every one of us at this moment just sat for five minutes and asked ourselves that one simple question. What is the Lord Jesus Christ as a person really to me? That's Christianity. That's New Testament Christianity. Look at it in the life of Paul. Look at his apostrophes. Look at his ecstasies. Look at, look at his expressions. The Lord. The person himself. And so on I say with all who have followed him down the running centuries. And we are all in one or other of these two categories. We are either like this man Simon the Pharisee or else we are like this woman who was a sinner. But there she has heard that he's entering the house and she enters and she's simply concerned to express her love to him. Is our interest personal or is it general? Is it this devotion or is it the mere intellectual interest? I know of nothing more appalling than the possibility of spending a lifetime in having nothing but a vague, general, nebulous, uncertain interest in the Son of God and not really to know Him. A day is coming in the life of every one of us when nothing will matter but this. When you'll be leaving behind you all earthly human knowledge and all human beings, the nearest and dearest, and your naked soul will be going on, the one thing that will matter then is, do you know him? Will he be real to you? Will he be with you? Will you be able to speak to him? The personal relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then let me go on to put a second principle which is equally obvious. The proof of our love is provided by our lives, if you like, by our actions. And here again this stands out on the very surface of this picture. This, of course, is a universal principle. Love is always something that expresses itself. It's very nature, it's very genius, insists upon that and demands that. 
Love is something dynamic, something that radiates, something that's bound to emit itself. It can't contain itself. It's something like radium, if you like, that's always throwing out its power and its manifestation. Love is not a mere matter of sentiment. It's not a mere matter of feeling. It's bigger than that. And there are certain characteristics of love. And we are reminded of some of them very prominently and very strikingly in this particular story. There is always a warmth about love. And always a passion. And an abandon. Yes, let me use even the term ecstasy. Now, you look at this woman and you see it very strikingly. Uh, this woman came in when we are told she stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. There's love expressing itself. And I say it's the very genius of love that it should do this. And it does it in that way and those are its obvious characteristics. There's a warmth about it. Not the formality of a Simon, who may have been very polite and very formal, and who introduces our Lord probably in the right way, and pays due deference to him. His manners are polished, but there's no warmth there. It's the coldness of formality and externality. There's no passion there. There's no sense of abandon. There's no ecstasy. He's in perfect control of himself, but not so the woman. What a striking contrast it is. And as I understand the scriptures and the lives of the saints, this principle is always true. The love of the Christian to the Lord Jesus Christ must express itself. And it does express itself. It will express itself. You can't stop it. And it does so in various ways. It does so in words. I've already reminded you of that when I've told you to consult your hymn books. These men, out of the fullness of their hearts and the richness of their experience, burst forth and sang. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Thou, O Christ, art all I want. That's love. The men can't keep it in. He was a poet, you say. Yes, but you needn't write it. You needn't say it in poetry. You can say it in prose. But love feels these things and it tells him. It addresses him. It speaks to him, and it speaks about him. Now, as I pointed out, love in every realm and in every sphere always does that. The lover expresses his love to the object of his love. He tells others about the object of his love. He talks about the object of his love. He can't keep it to himself. It's characteristic of the very thing itself, and our relationship to our Lord is one of love. So we speak of him. We speak to him. We tell others about him. It comes out in words. But obviously it doesn't stop at words. It expresses itself also in actions. Look at this woman lying at his feet and there weeping upon them and washing his feet with her tears, making up the deficiencies of the cold formalist, wiping them with the very hairs of her head. There was no towel provided and anointing them with her oil. And thus she's just lavishing her love upon him. 
allowing it to move forth, to pour forth upon him. His feet even are enough, anything as long as she can touch this dear and blessed person. But ah, says someone, that's mysticism. No, it isn't mysticism. This is the true Christian faith. If you like, there is in true Christian faith what may be called, if you like, a true mysticism. Not a philosophical mysticism, but a relationship with the person immediate and direct and a knowledge of him and a desire to love him and to adore him and abandon a passion. Now again, let me pause to ask a simple question. And my main desire this morning is just to ask these questions. I've asked myself these questions. As I'm asking you these questions. I've asked myself this question during these past weeks. Why do I preach at Westminster Chapel? Is it simply because I'm the official minister? Is it because I've taken it up as a vocation? Is it because now it has become the thing to do in my life? Is it because my holiday has ended and I start on a certain Sunday? Is it that? If it is, well, God have mercy upon me. Or is it because I delight to talk about him and to tell you about him and to try to hold him before you? That's the question. And it's a question I say we all must face. This woman loved him. These apostles loved him. The saints have loved him. If you don't love him, why don't you love him? It wasn't that they were exceptional people. Look at this woman, a sinner. Look at others who've expressed their love. It's nothing innate in human nature. That isn't the thing, as I'll show you in a moment, that determines it. The question, therefore, is, my friend, do you love him? Are you showing that you love him? Is he aware of it? Is it being manifested? Here is the thing I say that is quite inescapable. The first Christians counted it an honor to suffer for his name. The supreme honor in life to these people was to die for the name of Christ. They expressed their devotion. You feel it as you read an account of their meetings. There was this warmth, this passion. Yes, if you like, you can almost call it this ecstasy. At the very name of Jesus. Take the Apostle Paul, for instance. The stylists have often criticized him. And they use great high-sounding words. They say the style of the apostle in his epistles is characterized by the frequency of the anacholeutha. That's marvelous, isn't it? What's an anacholeuthan? Well, an anacholeuthan is just this. It's a man writing, setting out to develop an argument, and suddenly he seems to forget all about it and goes off at a tangent and then comes back to it again. He breaks into his own case, into his own argument, into his own statement. That's an anacholeuthan. I suppose that from the strictly stylistic standpoint, it is a defect. But all I can say is this, thank God for the defect. The Apostle Paul, you see, is incapable of mentioning the name of Christ 
without immediately breaking off into one of these hymns of praise and of adoration and of worship. His attitude towards the Lord was not that of a schoolmaster giving a lesson about him. There was a warmth of this personal devotion. Grace be unto you, he says, and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. But the mention of the name sends him off, who gave himself for us, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, and so on. He's interrupted his own statement. But he's done so because the very sound of the name had moved him, had disturbed him, had roused him. His passions were engaged. The Lord he loved, and he had to express his love. And it's true of all of them. And so you will find it in Christian literature and devotion right through the long history of the Christian church. Now, of course, let us be careful and indicate this. I'm well aware of the fact that there are people who want to say at this point to me, aren't you saying something rather dangerous? Aren't you encouraging a mere riot of the emotions? Aren't you trying to inculcate some kind of emotionalism? Aren't you advocating some vague and perhaps dangerous ecstasy? Well, I'm aware of all these dangers. No man perhaps has pointed them out more frequently than I have. And yet I say that in our fear of the false fire, we mustn't become cold. We mustn't become lifeless. We mustn't become rigid. And there is no need to be in any danger for this reason. That our Lord himself has provided us with the teaching. He's shown us the safeguards. There's no need to be in a riot of feeling and of ecstasy or of busyness or of work, and to mistake that for love in this way. He has told us that really the man who loves him is the man who keeps his commandments. That's it. So that the sort of person who seems to be in a state of great passion and ecstasy in a meeting and then goes out and commits a sin, really hasn't the true passion to the Lord. Because the man who really loves the Lord is anxious above everything else to please him. And you please him, he says, by keeping his commandments, by doing the things that are well-pleasing in his sight. And if you're active and busy, well, your busyness may be in the name of the Lord, and yet it may be simply to please yourself or to get rid of your superfluous energy. How do you know that your actions are really true? Well, here's his test. You do all for his sake, and for his glory. You're not thinking of yourself at all. You're thinking of him. There's a well-known story which I think illustrates this very well. It's the story of a man some 60 or 70 years ago who spent a Sunday here in London and who went to hear two preachers, one in the morning and one in the evening. And after he left the morning service, he said, What a wonderful preacher. When he left the evening service, he said, What a wonderful Savior. You see the difference. The two men were preaching the same message. They were both orthodox. The two preachers this man listened to were highly orthodox. I could give you their names. They were both preaching out of the same New Testament. They were also both saying things that were perfectly right. And yet you see the difference. What a wonderful preacher. What a wonderful savior. The second man was lost in the savior. He wasn't in evidence. He disappeared. There was no display. It was the savior. 
And that's the test that you and I must apply to all our work. We can be busy in the Lord's work, I say. And yet, it may have very little to do with the Lord. Again, let me quote you a preacher who was here in London some 120 years ago. I remember reading in his diary a thing that frightened me. He put down this statement. I have these last few weeks been much engaged in the business of my Lord, but alas, how little engaged with my Lord. It's just that. Well, let I say that this is the test. Our love, and our love is something that reveals and manifests and expresses itself in our lives, in our actions. It's quite inevitable. It's bound to express itself, and it will, in words, in expressions, in talk, in demeanor, in behavior, in activities, but all for the Lord and for his sake. It's concentrated upon him. It's directed at him. It's to glorify him. So anything for him, even his feet, it doesn't matter what, nothing is too humble as long as it's for this blessed Lord himself. That's the test. And let me say but a word about the last principle. What is it that creates this love? The test of our profession is love. We show the reality of the love in our actions, yes, but what is it that produces the love? What creates it? And here again the answer is in the incident. The first thing is the realization of who he is. These people, as I reminded you, put the question, who is this? Quite right, that is the whole matter. You see, Simon had been impressed and attracted, but clearly he's, he doesn't understand this because the moment the Pharisees saw that our Lord allowed this woman to lie at his feet and to wash his feet, etc., he said in himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. He didn't know who the Lord was. He didn't understand him. He didn't realize who this person was. But the woman did. And it was because of a realization, however vaguely and dimly and inadequately, of the person, the true character of the person, that she behaved in the way that she did. She realized that he is the Lord of glory. And she poured out her love and her devotion because she knew he was worthy of it. Here again is an obvious principle. We all pay respect to people whom we think are great. We pay our homage, we pay our respect. We show them all that we can by way of admiration. Simon does it formally, invites him in as I say, but he doesn't uh, give him water to wash his feet. He doesn't give him the oil to anoint his hair. Uh, had he realized that this was a great person, he would have done that. If it had been some earthly prince, he would most certainly have done this. He would have had his servants to do it. There would have been nothing left out. Everything that could have been done to show the greatness and the, and, and the nobility of the person. But he doesn't realize it. The woman does realize it. And that is always the thing that calls out the devotion and the adoration of the Christian. The fact is, my friends, 
that the Lord of glory has been here on earth. The Son of God has been down amongst us. That is why he demands our allegiance this morning and our praise and our worship and our passion and our ecstasy, if you like. The Son of God has come down. Great is the mystery of godliness. That's it. And it is those who realize that, who have praised him and counted it the greatest honor in life to be members of his church and if needs be to die for him because he is the Lord of glory. But there is another element here and it's a very important one. The second thing that always produces love is a consciousness and a realization of our own sinfulness. Now, our Lord points this, you remember, in his parable and also in his questions to Simon and in his own specific statement. There was a certain creditor, he said, which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. He asks a question. After this man has forgiven both, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And then he enforces it, you remember, by saying this. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Now, read the Bible, read your hymn books, read the lives of the saints, and again you'll find this. It is always those who are most conscious of their sinfulness who have the greatest love to the Lord. The measure of the height of your love is your realization of the depth of your sin. Well, how do we explain this? Are you not by saying that there's someone putting a premium upon sin? Isn't our Lord teaching that this woman, because she'd been a terrible sinner, was in a sense a better person than Simon, who'd lived a good life and had been a moral man as a Pharisee? Obviously it's impossible. It isn't that. Well, why does he talk to someone about the 50 pence and the 500 pence? Ah, it's this. Sin must never be judged merely in terms of actions. You mustn't speak about great sins or little sins or merely total up the number of sins that a person has committed. If that were the case, the greatest sinner would obviously be the person like this woman who'd been living in the gutters of life. But that isn't the case. Realization of sin and of sinfulness is dependent upon our realization of the holiness of God and the demands of God. You, I say, consult the records and you'll find this, that some of the people who've been most aware of their sinfulness have lived exemplary lives, have always lived a saintly life, and yet they're aware of the depth of their iniquity and their sinfulness. Why? Well, they'd come near to the holiness of God. You see, it's a man like Isaiah who feels this. He gets this vision and he says, I am a man of unclean lips, I'm undone. Why? Well, it's the holiness of God. You don't measure sin by a standard beneath yourself, but by a standard above yourself. If a page in a book is perfectly white and there's just one little blot, how terrible it seems. 
Yes, but if it wasn't a clean page, it wouldn't stand out so prominently. It's the whiteness that shows the blackness. And so it is a realization of sinfulness that always leads to a love of the Lord. Vile and full of sin I am, says a man like Charles Wesley. He'd never been drunk, he'd never been an adulterer, he'd never lived a dissolute life. But he says, I'm vile, I'm full of sin. There is no good in me. How does he come to know that? Well, he stood in the presence of the Lord. He stood by that burning light. He's seen the eternal light itself and all the blackness has been revealed. If you don't love Christ this morning, it is almost certainly due to the fact that you've never seen your sinfulness. You've been interested in morality, not in holiness. You've had your little code and you haven't looked into the scriptures. You haven't read the Ten Commandments truly. You haven't realized that a covet is as reprehensible as to commit. That I have a desire and to play with it in your imagination and to fondle it is virtually to commit the sin. To look says Christ is as bad as to commit. He's done it already. It's a failure to know ourselves and the real state of our hearts. He to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. She hadn't loved before the forgiveness, she loves because of it. She realizes her need of it. She knows how vile she is. She's ostracized by society. Pharisees will have nothing to do with her. And they're even amazed that our Lord allows her to do this. She's a sinner, and she knows it. And all the writers of the hymns and all the others have known the depth of their iniquity. And that is the first ingredient in this love. For it leads to this. The realization of our sinfulness is followed by a realization of the greatness of his love. And that was what the woman realized. She'd understood his message. She'd understood his teaching. He breathed forgiveness. He showed her there was a hope for her. He'd come to die for her sins. He'd given himself for her. And she knew it. And she loved him. She'd been cleansed. She's been forgiven. She's reconciled to God. The depths has been plumbed. He's brought her up. He puts it in his own parable. And when he says of these two debtors, when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. And that is the message of the Christian faith. It's the essence of the Christian faith. That though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor. That though he was guiltless and sinless, he bore our guilt, he died our death. Do we believe that? Do you believe that the Son of God came down from heaven and lived here under the law, and lived as a man, and took the form of a servant, and suffered and endured the shame, and the spitting, and the agony of the cross, and shed his blood, that you might be forgiven, 
that you might be reconciled to God. If you do, you must love him. You can't help it. Like the woman, your heart will go out to him. He's done all for you. And you give yourself to him. That's it. Do you love him? Do you adore him? Does your heart go out to him? Is it warm as I speak of him? Do you long to know him better? Can you say honestly, Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. Yet, I love thee and adore. Oh, for grace to love thee more. Let every man examine himself. Amen.